0: From Miami Law, I'm Annette Ugez and this is The Explainer.
1: So it is being directed by Sultan Al-Jabbar. He is the president of the Emirates National Oil Company, which is ADNOC. Uh, He's been designated as the president of the COP and that's the person who kind of runs it. It's a pretty powerful position because they set the agenda, they manage themes they can be really a make it or break it figure in how well the negotiations go by kind of the role they are able to play it's a high status
0: position kind of for a diplomat as well welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines The annual major climate change conference takes place soon in Dubai. Environmental law expert Jessica Auli talks about how we got here and what to watch coming out of the negotiations. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Jessica. Welcome
2: back to the show. Good morning. Thanks. So you're getting ready to go to the Conference of the Parties, uh, 28, I believe, in Dubai, uh, taking some students. So what's going to happen? Oh, and maybe first tell us what it is.
1: I was going to say, look, why don't we step back and let me tell you what a COP is, Conference of the Parties, which we call a COP. And this one is 28 because it's the 28th one. And so the parties to what might be a good first question. And it's the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, a treaty that was signed in 1992 in Rio, sometimes called the Rio Convention for that reason. And it was an agreement to meet every year at a conference of the parties at a COP to talk about what the countries of the world can do together to fight climate change, what type of measures they could take. And the first treaty is a framework convention, meaning they're just kind of setting the rules, but not making any of the real detailed commitments other than some... Commitments to make reporting and updates and things like that. So then at COP number three, which is in 1997 in Kyoto, is where we get the Kyoto Protocol. And that's the first time the countries actually said, OK, now let's actually agree to do something. But The Kyoto Protocol wasn't really that successful because not All of the countries that had agreed to the original 1992 treaty signed on to that Kyoto Protocol, that additional agreement, including the United States. So many years are passing and people are trying to figure out what should we do next. That brings us to the Paris Agreement that's at COP 21 in 2015. And now we have an agreement that is kind of Not replacing the Kyoto, really, because actually Kyoto still continues with the countries that are parties to it, but it's supposed to kind of bring in more countries of the world to try and fight climate change and has some real commitments behind it. And so starting in 2015, um, or really starting then in 2016, after it's signed at the tail end of 2015. We move forward with all of these commitments and ideas of things that countries are supposed to do. And so at COP 28 here in Dubai, um, we are expecting to see progress on the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement, one thing we need to understand about that is it sets a goal to uh, not have climate change emissions. I'm sorry, not to have the uh, degrees increase by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above uh, pre-industrial levels. And how are we going to do that? We're going to do that by all the countries of the world setting nationally determined contributions, NDCs. That means all the countries are supposed to agree to cut back on their emissions, but the amount is different for every country. And so each country nationally determines how much they're going to cut back and in what sectors and how they're going to do that. The Paris Agreement had set within it a, a stock take, a global stock take, a moment where we take stock of what's going on, how far we've come, and that's supposed to now happen in Dubai. It's a five-year, every five years, we'll do it. Here's our first one. So that's one of the things people will really be looking at, this global stock take.
2: So the head of this this year is uh, a guy from the oil industry. Uh, that sort of seems mm, maybe interesting. <laughs>
1: Uh, interesting is one uh, word to say. I think people are very upset about it, frankly. So it is being held, uh, directed by Sultan Al-Jabbar, but he is the president of the Emirates National Oil Company, which is Adnoc. Uh He's been designated as the president of the COP, and that's the person who kind of runs it. It's a pretty powerful position because they set the agenda, they manage to be Themes, they can be really a make it or break it figure in how well the negotiations go by kind of the role they are able to play. It's a high status position, kind of for a diplomat as well. Everyone was shocked when this guy was uh named the president of the cop. The the Emirates says the hosting country gets to choose their president, and we'll see. Do you think this is going to be the first
2: fossil fuel-friendly cop? <laughs> Well, I mean, can you tell that from the agenda or from anything that's sort of coming out in the in the lead up? Well, I think
1: it would be a mistake to suggest that the previous cops were not fossil fuel friendly. You know, there are a fossil fuel industry has been present at the COP at the last one in Egypt. There was uh, I I don't remember the numbers, but there were people who studied how many people were there who were representatives of the fossil fuel industry. Now, to be in the building, you have to be part of an accredited organization or be um, invited by a party, one of the countries. So. A fossil fuel company as a company is not the type of thing that can kind of get their own accreditation, but through working with countries and through NGOs, they are there and they've been there and they've been on the stages. We have had uh, during the Trump administration, we had presentations on why we should be Thinking about clean coal as being part of our climate strategy, I'm not saying they're the main conversations, but they have already been in the COP, so that's not surprising. One of the things that people hope to push for this year is a complete phase out of fossil fuels, and I think that is something that is hard to believe would happen with the presidency of the COP being run by an oil executive.
2: Mm, Okay. Talk a little about the loss and damage fund and why why are people upset that the World Bank is running it?
1: Yeah, so the loss and damage fund is the other big, I would say right after global stock take, this is the number two thing people will be looking at. So loss and damage, uh, the idea of it is almost from tort law, the idea that, you know, if somebody has been injured by climate change, if your sea level rise means that you have need to build a new desalinization plant, if hurricanes mean you have lost your home, Who's going to pay for that? And we know that a bulk of the loss and damage is happening in developing nations and poor countries who not only don't have the funds to repair, but also perhaps were the least responsible for the climate change impacts. And so the idea of the fund is that the wealthier countries of the world would pay into this fund and people could, countries could make applications to get money to help kind of repair some of the things. It's a big difference from the main part of the Paris Agreement, which is really focused on mitigating climate change, which is putting less carbon into the air. And this is more on the adaptation side of what do we do to the impacts that we're feeling from climate change. So at the very tail end of COP 27 in Egypt, actually, even like after it was supposed to all be over in the final days, they agreed to establish a loss and damage fund. But of course, didn't have any time to set up the details. So just about a week ago, early November, at a meeting in Abu Dhabi, they, um, several countries come together and created a blueprint. It'll have to be approved at the COP, but I think people feel like a lot of the compromises already happened, so it's likely to be approved, we'll see. Um, And in it, they set up a little bit of the structural how it works. As you mentioned, one of the big debates is that they placed the administration of it in the World Bank. Many developing countries are upset with that decision, in part because the developing world is not a big player in the World Bank. They are usually having the World Bank come to them. They are not in the offices. They are not the decision makers. It is seen as an entity run by developed countries. Also, there's a history of the World Bank. Coming in and creating projects and at the end of the day, the developing countries being left with a lot of debt. And so they're just worried of similar patterns emerging. And so they were pretty unhappy with that choice. Um, There's also a big debate about how much money is going to be put into it. I think the initial pledges are about um, I saw $500 million is the idea that's been floating around. People say it's just that. just
2: like couch change, yes? Exactly,
1: exactly. Totally inadequate. People, Not
2: my couch, but <laughs> couch change.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Bezos's couch. Uh, yeah, so it's pretty, pretty minimal considering the level of just the estimates already. People really believe we need trillions of dollars. And then also who's going to put in money? And so there's this uh, very uh, UN type... Uh, debate about what are the terms of the phrasing going to be and who's going to have to put in money. And they after long debates, I believe they settled on um, uh, developed countries are urged. put in money and developing countries are encouraged to put in money notice neither one of those is a mandate or a requirement um just be a good guy be a good guy and so encourage versus urged and then and then uh there's also some really wealthy countries of the world who are in that developing category because those lists were created in 1992 um so for example saudi arabia emirates they're listed as developing countries um not developed countries and yet is just a lot of wealth in those countries and so a lot of concern about what this is going to look like going forward but also a lot of people are pretty encouraged because the existence of the fund was it was a big win for a lot mm-hmm. of climate activists if not the world bank Cool. Not the World Bank who that, I? you know, I don't actually know who would be better. Maybe some of the other development banks that have been um, more working with developing countries, maybe creating an, uh, an, a new entity that would run it. There are previous climate funds called um, that have run and managed out of the United Nations. It could be something that they could have looked at there or, you know, um, the Amazon fund. There's other there's other structures where people uh, from developing countries have played a little bit more of a role in how it's run. Or they could get that dude that did the 9-11 funds for victims. <laughs> well, one hopes uh, this would be a little bit uh, broader than that. I mean, yes. there's so many, they, the key word you'll hear is like operationalize. There's so many questions to be answered. How do you apply? Who gets to decide? You know, how are we going to spend it? Who's going to keep their eyes on it? making sure it's spent correctly. Every time we create something like this, It's a long time before we actually figure out how it works. You know, Paris Agreement was in 2015. It's 2023. We're still not quite sure how it all works yet.
2: Parsing it, right. Yeah. So can you talk about some uh, recent climate change litigation?
1: Um, Yeah, so it's been pretty exciting on the climate change litigation front these days, both domestically and, and across the world. So one of the more exciting ones we've seen locally is a Montana case held versus Montana. Um, this is a Montana, Montana Supreme Court case where they recognized a right of the of the youth plaintiffs to uh, have a right to a healthy environment embedded in Montana's constitution. And they said this language within Montana's constitution, recognizing a right to a healthy environment, suggests uh, an obligation on behalf of the state to actually do something about it. In this case, they were asking, they a crazy, uh, laws in Montana that when they're doing environmental review, they were forbidden from considering climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so what they were asking for was actually a relatively small thing, which is to, to strike that language and actually require those considerations, particularly considering how much, um, fossil, how big the fossil fuel industry is in Montana. We just saw last week, uh, exciting case from Hawaii. Uh, there was another one, I think, just yesterday from Louisiana. Uh, what we're seeing is cases that are now going to trial is the exciting thing. I'll put it that way. So many of our earlier cases just didn't even make it past these initial thresholds. And now we're seeing cases against fossil fuel companies uh, on a couple different things, kind of the injuries that they're causing to, to state and public resources based on sea level rise and increased storms. This is not surprising that they are places like Hawaii and Louisiana. And we're also seeing really widespread across the country, fraud type cases against Exxon and Chevron. There was a big one uh, filed recently in San Francisco, in California, arguing that they have lied to the public because they knew about climate change. They knew the impacts of climate change. And we can track actually public statements and reports and advertisements where they, they try to hide their information and pretended that there wasn't a problem. Shocking. Shocking, I think. Yeah. A lot of people say it's kind of you can think of it as similar to what we saw with the tobacco industry. Mm -hmm. So those types of lawsuits that they really did already have the the science and there's very good records showing that they understood what was going on and they made a concerted effort to uh, create doubt. And, and try and create a debate and fund scientists, who the very few scientists who might question climate change, getting money from them. And so what we see is after a long time of people not even being able to get into court on climate change, a ton of different types of climate cases going forward, and, um, and a lot of them on relatively new uh, legal litigation strategies. So it's kind of exciting from a lot of different ways. Cool. cool.
2: So let's bring it back to Dubai. As we finish, Uh, talk a little about what
1: you and your students kind of are doing out over there. Yeah, happy to. We're pretty excited. I have a delegation of 15 students, almost all law students, a couple graduate students from our Abbott Center for Ecosystem Science and Policy. We are going to be a tending um, and participating. I shouldn't say participating. Nobody's at the table negotiating anything. But as accredited observers, we get to be in the room where it happens. So they will get to sit and listen to the negotiations. We have each student is working with a partner organization, um, a country like the country of Ecuador. Um, We're working with Miami-Dade County. We're working with a couple of NGOs like the Mayor's Migration Council and some others. And each student is partnered up with somebody who they can help that organization kind of see their interests in the COP. Why do they care about the COP? What are they hoping to do? And sometimes also, sometimes be a note taker for them, sometimes help them prepare materials, maybe brief them on an issue. And so in that way, that's a learning opportunity for the students, but also they can provide some service to, to groups that are trying to figure out how to engage more.
2: Great, we'll be looking for those dispatches. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, thanks so much for coming. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Always happy to chat with
0: you. All right, see you around. Thanks for joining us for Season 11 of The Explainer. We will be back in January with a whole new season of Explaining. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at theexplainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Ugez. This week's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's annual Class Action Forum, January 26, 2024, where leading judges, practitioners, and scholars from around the world discuss mass tort litigations, MDLs, and class actions. For more information, visit www.law.miami.edu.